Go ahead and turn to Psalm 7. Uh, That's where we'll be this morning. It's been a fun time being in our series from here to hope. And now we look at Psalm 7 as Pastor Eric begins a brand new series next week uh, through the book of Colossians, which we're really excited about. So Psalm 7, as we're going into this, is one of David's lament psalms. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And so this is a psalm of David crying out in pain because something has happened in his life that causes him to question what God is up to because though he knows God is good, it doesn't feel good for what he's going through. It it reminded me this week, I, uh, that's, that's a lie. Last week I watched a movie and um, I don't know if you've seen it. It was about a uh, a young prince, and uh, he was next in line for the throne, and he had some people that didn't enjoy the fact that he was next in line and actually wanted the throne instead of him. You've heard this story before, I'm sure, or something like it. And so the guy who wanted to take the, the throne from the young prince uh, set up a trap so that he would die, and in the process, not only would the prince die, but his dad, who's the king, would die as well. And so, as he was uh, looking over the one who was coming against the prince, the evil one, as he was looking over, watching this all unfold, something happened that I don't think he expected. The king rescued his son and began to pull him out of the fray, put his son into safety, and then began to climb his way out of the battle for his own life to be saved. And then that epic moment that's etched into the brain of every 80s and 90s kid when Scar sinks his claws into Mephasa and says, long live the king, and throws him off. And Simba is to the side saying, no, and he falls into the stampeding wildebeest. And of course, you know the rest. But of all of that, here's the most vile thing that Scar does against Mufasa and against Simba. Young Simba is there weeping about the loss of his father, and Scar, in his evil villainry, comes alongside him and begins to whisper slander into the ear of young Simba. He says, oh, I know you didn't mean for this to happen, but he came down to rescue you. It is your fault. He says, I understand that you didn't mean for this to happen to your king, who's your friend and your father and loves you. And also, what will your mother think? Oh, do you remember that moment? It's like, and in that moment, you can watch Simba's face, which has already fallen, droop to the ground in terror and fear as the slander, the twisting of the manipulating of the narrative of what really happened to work against Simba in that moment as the slander took hold and changed the course of the rest of his life. In fact, it began to affect Simba immediately, and it took, I mean, an entire Hakuna Matata song, a reuniting with Nala, and an entire Elton John's Can You Feel the Love Tonight. And through all of that, he is haunted by this 
reality, this, these two statements that stood on both sides of Simba, tearing his soul to pieces like a lion, because he was one, and a lion lied to him to get him there, as this slander affected the trajectory of his life. Until that moment, of course, at the end where replaying Scar versus Simba, he whispers the truth, and the truth overcomes his emotion and sets him free. And the whack in the head by a, by a, a Rafiki, you know, it doesn't matter, it's in the past, like that, that whole thing, right? That, that moment happens to help him see. Now, I tell you that because you you can relate. Why that moment is so powerful is because you can relate to Simba. You know what it is to have somebody manipulate the narrative against you, putting you on in between two what seem like paradoxical statements, but that are actually true, tearing your soul apart, or presented as truth, tearing your soul apart, and the only thing that you feel like you can do is run, because to defend yourself would be seen as guilty. To attack the, uh, the one who's saying it would be seen as overreaching, and so you have nothing left to do. You know what slander does to your soul. In fact, David felt like this in Psalm 7. Look at how he starts out. He says in verse 1, "'Oh, Lord my God, in you I take refuge.'" Uh, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David had found himself at the hands of slander, being suppressed by the, a narrative that had been manipulated to be against him. And what the slander did, it made David feel like you've felt with slander. There is no way to win. This is tearing me apart. God, help me. You have been the recipient of slander from the time you were, I mean, many of you, you understand that the slander that you received didn't just affect you for days, but decades. You can remember, like me, something someone said when you were very young that has torn apart your heart even Today, you know what it is to stand like David and say, this is tearing apart the very core of who I am. David was being slayed by slander. And the slander that was slaying David has some content we find out from Psalm 7. One of the hints begins with the title. The title is an inspired scripture, but it's notes that are given to us so we begin to understand what this can kind of be attributed to. And it begins the title, a shigayon, that just means like a crazy song that goes all over the place. So if my sermon's all over the place, it's because I'm following the text. A shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. This gives us some context that there was a guy named Cush, or at least he was a Cushite, or he had the last name Cush. I'm one of four boys, and so I remember in high school all the time, my teachers would say, you're one of the Whitneys. That meant, yeah, I belong to that, those people, the Whitneys that live at my house. I'm number three of four. That's me. To Cush, the Benjaminite of the tribe of Benjamin, who was constantly at war against David. In fact, 
what happened was the Benjaminites simply did not like David because David was the one who would take over the throne from their famous Benjaminite, Saul. Saul, who was named as king, and God anointed David to be king after Saul and over Saul. And because of that and their fame and reputation of David growing greater than Saul's himself, the tribe of Benjamin, the Benjaminites, did not like David anymore. And so multiple times at the hands of these Benjaminites, that David would endure slander. In fact, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the commentators uh, attribute this particular psalm to a few different places. Perhaps it was the time that David was slandered, some commentators say, in 1 Samuel 24. You know the story of 1 Samuel 24. If not, write it down. Look it up later, but here's what happens. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul is chasing David to kill him because we find out in 24, 9, that someone had been speaking against David in the presence of Saul. Someone had been saying to Saul, David's out to get you. David's coming at you. David's going to overthrow you. Someone had been slandering David to Saul, and Saul says, I'm going to kill David. And he begins to chase David around the desert, and David is hiding from cave to cave. Well, David is surrounded by his mighty men, and as he goes into a cave to hide from Saul one day, Saul comes in to relieve himself. That's why I know you know this story, to relieve himself. And as he's squatting down, relieving himself, his men begin to say, David, listen, God maybe has given him into your hand. He's been offending you, coming at you. This is your chance. He's literally a sitting duck. You can get him now. And David replies in a godly way and says, no. That's what David does. He says, no. He says, God put his favor on Saul. I will not lift my hand against God's anointed. In time, God will redeem me, but I am not the one who will redeem myself. I will not sin because of Saul. Or maybe uh, some scholars point to 1 Samuel 26, where another time, it seems to be a pattern here that God's people are slandered. Another time, Saul is chasing David around, trying to kill him because once again, someone has told Saul, David's coming for you, though David has proven himself over and over again to be trustworthy. As David is out and uh, being, uh, uh, being chased by Saul. Saul stops and sets up camp for the night, and David and his mighty men look down, and they see Saul sleeping next to a spear. Now, Saul has used a spear numerous times to try to spear David to a wall, and David has fled every time and not retaliated. But, Saul, but David's mighty men look down at Saul sleeping, and they see the spear on the floor, and they say, this is your chance. You can defend yourself here. You see, the reason why Saul's chasing you around is because he can move. But if you pin him to the ground with that spear, problem solved. Dude's defended. You're defended. He can't chase you if he's pinned to the ground with his spear. And David says, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to notice a pattern. I'm not going to sin by taking a vengeance on Saul. God will avenge me in his own time. I will not sin by raising my hand against the Lord's anointing. And instead of taking the spear and, sp and pinning 
Saul to the ground, he removes the spear and a bucket of water and says, you can see that I am righteous, and he trusts God with the vengeance. Some commentators say that this, the, the words of this Cush, the Benjaminite, come from, uh, come from uh, Second Samuel, I don't want to mislead you here, uh, Second Samuel 15 and 16. It's after David has ascended to the throne, and he has had kids, and one of them is named Absalom. And Absalom begins to, in 2 Samuel 15, work uh, strategically to have this kind of counter-political, uh, passive-aggressive, manipulative conversations with leaders in the city and leaders in the kingdom to rise up against David, doubting his leadership, uh, doubting uh, his ability to rule. And he raises up a group of people to come against David, Absalom does. And David, instead of fighting, he flees Away. And as he's fleeing in 2 Samuel 16, he comes across this Cush guy. And this Cush guy, uh, while David is surrounded by his mighty warriors, begins to throw rocks at David and say, You are a worthless man. You have blood on your hands. This Benjaminite, who is constantly as a Benjaminite against David, begins to abuse him and literally curse him out. And his mighty men, David's, they have another solution. You'll see a pattern. He says, listen, here's the problem with this guy. The reason why he's throwing rocks and cursing you is because his head is attached to his shoulders. And so what we can do for you, David, we can stop it. We'll just like detach his head from his shoulders. Dude can't throw stones and curse if he can't have breath in his lungs, right? just to stop what's going on. And David does an amazing thing. You will see a pattern. He says, no, I will not be the one who sins in this situation. This could be from God. God will avenge me in my own time. If he chooses to, I will not sin and defend myself. Or maybe it was another time because the context of the psalm does not tell us where the slander is coming from, but it does tell us the content of the slander. The content of the slander is found in, chapter, in Psalm 7, verse 4. There's two statements here that David uses. He says, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, the guy who was slandering whatever the situation was, was standing on one side of David and saying, you have repaid Saul, who was your friend and king, with evil, and standing on the other side and saying, you have gone way too far in your retribution of what you're getting from Saul and all this, even if he meant evil against you. Here's the point of all of this. What was going on against David with this slander left him in a no-win situation. It could have been 1 Samuel 24. It could have been 1 Samuel 26. It could have been 2 Samuel chapter 16. Or it could have been one of the many other times that David was slandered. And what we find in this passage is David's response to slander. That every time David is slandered, he has a patterned 
response. And that patterned response is not just David's, but ours in Christ today. You see, our natural reaction when people slander us, when they twist the narrative to make us look bad, when the narrative becomes such that to defend or to go on the offense or to counter all of it would actually make me sin, when slander happens in our lives, we have a tendency to to say, you know what you should do? You should just go against them. Like they said this about you, you say this about them. They're getting you like this, you get them like this. We have a tendency to go on the offense, or maybe you have a tendency to go on the defense. That's not true. I'm going to stop you right there so that your blows no longer have any effect. Maybe you go into this counter message manipulation thing where you post passive-aggressive Facebook comments and updates so that others know who you're talking about and what you're talking about without actually naming them so that way everyone would know that this is not what you agree with. You see, when we're slandered, we are more like David's men and less like David. And Scripture in Psalm 7 is going to help us see that when we are more like David in response to slander, we're actually more like Christ. You don't believe me? Peter wrote to a group of people in 1 Peter who were being slandered and were exiled because of their faith. And he tells them in 1 Peter chapter Two, He says, for to you, for to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was slandered, yet he did not slander in return. When he suffered, He didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges with justice. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By Jesus' wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like a sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Y'all, when it comes to slander, there is a better way for the Christ life. There is a better way than going on the offense. There is a better way than getting defensive. There is a better way than manipulating conversations so that everyone knows that that's actually the guilty party. The way of Christ is death of ourselves and glory of him forever. We know there's a better way because the gospel declares that all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander are stopped in the life of the Christian or at least ought to be because we are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are owned by 
God. We are a people of his own possession. We were bought with the very precious blood of Christ that is undefiled, that will never fail. We belong fully to him and his name bears on our hearts and our souls. Therefore, when we come against slander, we have the way of Christ to follow. And that's what we see David do. You see, the pattern given for us in Psalm 7 is good, godly, and Christian because Christ himself did this as well. So how do we as followers of Christ slay the slander that's slaying us? Well, just look at what David does here. This slander is coming against him, and we don't know where, but it was happening all over David's life. And the first thing David does with this slander, this blows my mind, the first thing he does with this slander, verse 3, he begins to seek truth in the charge. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, is is that shocking? That shocks me. This dude is slandering David, who's either king over everything in Israel or has lots of mighty resources at his beck and call. And his first step, not his only step, but his first step is to say, God, is this true? Did I I do this? And look at how he moves from the general to the specific here. He says, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, If I indeed did repay my friend with evil or plunder my enemy without cause. Look at where he goes in verse 5. If this is true, that that's what I have done, what we would say, if I have sinned, let the enemy pursue my soul. God, don't let them stop coming after me because it's showing me that I'm a sinner. He says, Don't let, continuing on in verse 5, let them overtake me. God, do not let me get away with this. If I have sinned, do not let me get away with this. This uh, third part of verse 5, let my enemy trample my life to the ground. God, not only don't let me get away with it, but stop me in my tracks that I would sin no more. And lay my glory in the dust, verse 5. God, I do not want my name and my reputation to be recognized with sin because my name and your name is born on me. Therefore, God, lay me down that my glory wouldn't be known because you are more glorious and I don't want to bear the, I don't want your name to be slandered. David looks for truth in the charge. He could have gone any way he wanted to with this. He could have, at a minimum, literally just said, sure, and it would have been stopped. Yet David's high regard for the holiness of God drove him to say, even if my enemy is used to point out my sin, if I have sinned, God, stop me where I am. This is a reality of the Christ life. That God can use an unlikely source 
to reveal the sin that you are experiencing, that you are doing against Him in your life. David himself, do you remember, was confronted by a story from Nathan the prophet about his own sin that he had forgotten and was unaware of. If you remember in the New Testament, Jesus used the sin of the adulterous woman to reveal that situation in God's sovereignty, to reveal that those who were coming against Jesus that had stones in their hands ready to stone did not see their own depravity in the midst of that depraved situation. We know that on the cross of Christ, God revealed to us through the means of the death of God, that we sin and will suffer in ways we don't even know. God is able to use a donkey to reveal Balaam's lack of faith and sin, and God can even use this David knew, because David, like you and me as followers of Christ, know we're capable of doing the wrong thing even when we're trying to do the right thing. How often have I been reminded, I'm asking you because you're going to know the answer, by my wife, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. You see, we can be right but wrong because of what we do, and David knew that. You see, as followers of Christ, we're not afraid, we're not afraid of someone saying we're in sin. In fact, we're commanded to point out sin in one another in a way that is good and godly and bears up with a brother or sister. But we're not afraid of sin because we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of sin. We know that if there's a way that I am going against God in this, that I'm making God look stupid in this, I need someone to tell me so that I can confess my sin because he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. We know because of the gospel, we do not have to flee from sin. And you and me, if slander is used so that God would see, here's a way you can walk closer to me, bring it on. That's what David says. And that's what God is calling us to do, perhaps in your slander today. Would you be bold enough to believe that God in His sovereign design could perhaps use slander, though that's not what He wanted from the beginning, but rather now to help you see, here's a way you can walk and experience me in a greater way. If that's true, then bring on the slander. See, David knew that, but David didn't just stop there. You see, there is an end to slander. You know that. You know that the gospel ends slander in your life, or at least it ought to. But there is an ultimate end to slander. There is a day coming when slander is slayed forever, and that day is found when God judges all people and makes all things right again. That's where David appeals to in verse 6. He says, oh, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. 
over it return on high. David appeals not to the moment, but to the eternal God and says, God, you are the supreme and highest authority. You see what's going on. Gather the people together and begin making judgments. This week I I read in light of what is doing and probably ought to not to have the chaos of this week remind me to be aware of the beauty of the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. But I read again his letter from a Birmingham jail. And if you have not read it, you ought to. But over and over, I was reminded of the beauty as we look back 50 years on the beautiful restoration uh, that, rather, that began the restoration, that the image of God is found in every man, woman, and child, whatever their skin color, that we, that using Martin Luther King to do that. I was reminded as I was reading this letter, this guy is walking through terrible circumstances arm in arm with brothers and sisters in Christ who, as I'm preparing this sermon, are slandering him all over the place. And in that moment, though we did not see all justice prevail, hence this week at the repudiation of injustice, of race and of racism in this country, we do look forward to when God in his sovereign control, redeems all things, sits on the judgment throne, and as he was walking with MLK throughout his life, he will walk with us in that moment as he was working to make judgment, and we will know that the thing that whatever he saw, we will see as it all comes true. Like, the, like there's a day coming when that's dead, when racism is ended, when regardless of what courts said, the higher authority of God will rule and reign. That's where David goes. God, there is slander, and I need you to move above everyone in this. And here's how he asks them to move. Look at verse 8 through 11. He says, the Lord judges the people. He's seeking the justice of God and the drama of all this. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. David knew by faith what we know by name. That in verse 10, God is the judge of all people and will be. That he is going to judge everyone, including David. That's the second half of verse 8, rather. Oh, Lord, judge me according to my righteousness. David wasn't saying, judge everyone else and leave me out of this. He said, no, you, you are the judge of all people, including me. And verse 9, there is an end to those who are found to be evil, but God can establish the righteous. Look at how he continues in verse 10. 
My shield's with him. The only hope I have in this judgment is that God would rescue me and save me and give me an upright heart. Verse 11, this is what God does. He is a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. In other words, his judgment against evil is eternal and does not change. Verse 11, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Here's what David was relying on by faith that we know by name, the gospel of Jesus Christ. David was asking God to call a public account, to publicly show that sinners are judged by God and God alone will save them from his wrath against sin. Does that not sound somewhat uh, uh, familiar for now those of us who are New Testament believers? That we confess that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and me and everybody falls under God's judgment because of sin. That you are judged, I am judged by God, by my standard that I have met and everyone has failed to meet that standard. There are none righteous, no, not one. And that the consequences of those sin is death. The wicked will come to an end. But for those who confess their sin and believe on Jesus Christ, he is a shield and provides refuge from his wrath. And this is how he did it. He did it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you, who were once dead in your trespasses, are made alive together with Christ because he has forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that was against you with all of its legal demands that showed you were guilty. This, Colossians 1 tells us, he took aside, nailing it to the cross, putting Jesus' hands over it, and the blood of Christ paid for your sins. And by this public display of God's divine judgment against sin, he disarmed all the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. David was appealing to the judgment of God, whose name we know is Jesus Christ. At the event of the judgment, the cross of Christ so that your sin for your evil could be atoned for if you repent of your sin. Here's what David does in this psalm, and it's beautiful for us who endure slander. He looks for truth in the charge. God, where can I walk in greater righteousness and greater holiness with you? Stop me from walking in sin. And, oh God, would you bring justice in this, just as your gospel slayed slander in my life. God, your salvation is what will slay the slander that's going on right now. And so this is why he ends in verse 17 in thanks. He says, because of this, I will give thanks to the Lord. In, 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 in Psalm 7, here's what happens. David does three things. He says, God, help me because I'm in trouble. God, show me where I'm guilty. God, thank you for the righteousness you give. And he asks God to do everything else in his slander. 
So what do we do with this? If you are being honest, maybe I'll just say it like this, and you'll be bold enough to insert your own name. If God wanted to help me see where I have slandered others, all he would have to do, maybe, is show the record of my Facebook posts. But he doesn't stop there. If God wanted to show me where I would and have manipulated the true narrative to make someone else look bad or purposefully believe a false narrative because it makes me feel better, all he would have to do was help me, would help me see the thoughts and attitudes I've had toward those whose skin color is different than mine. Y'all, the heart of racism, at the heart of racism, one, one of the characteristics that comes out is slander, believing a false narrative so that they look dumb. Y'all, that's sin. If God wanted me to see where I've slandered, He doesn't just stop at my actions and attitudes. He goes to the very heart. And so when I am slandered, I understand that the only hope that that person has of stopping that slander and being forgiven isn't my offense, it's not my defense, it's not my counter-narratives that I sow on Facebook. The only hope they have is the only hope I have, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I thank God that the same salvation that slayed slander in me is the salvation that can slay slander in them as well. So here's what we do. First thing, just looking at the text, number one, we face the slander coming against us, and we say, God, is there something in this from you? This isn't a, a, a guilty charge of like, you need to feel guilty about like, you need, you need to find something that maybe I did wrong, and if you hadn't have done it, then maybe it wouldn't happen. That, that, that's not it. That's not it. That's from Satan. That is, that's that's uh, uh, unnecessary guilt trip. That's not it. But just looking at it at face value saying, Man, I, I, maybe I did have good intentions, but I said it wrong, and that's evil. Is there truth in the charge? It doesn't mean there will be, but if you know your heart, there might be. Is there truth in this charge? How am I sinning? God, would you stop that in me? Would you stop that in me? Because of Jesus, I know that you can. Confess that sin, and it's gone. It's done. And the second thing, God, in this slander, would you, by your gospel, bring justice? God, be unfair to them as you were to me. Show your love to them as you did to me. Give them what they don't deserve as you did not give me what I deserve. Oh God, would you bring justice in the drama of the slander? 
And then let's spend some time thanking God that he establishes righteousness in us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we got to spend together this morning looking at Psalm 7. Lord, the timing of it perhaps could not have been better. As we are both tempted to twist narrative around us to make it feel better for ourselves, and we are also the recipients of so much slander. Teach us to trust you as David did, and more than that, as Christ did. Help us to have the courage to respond to the sin that you reveal through the means of slander. God, if there's another way, please use that. But Father, if that's your way, what you allow, God, would you help us to walk in greater holiness, experiencing a deeper relationship and trust in you. Teach us to have greater faith in you in the drama of slander that you, even if we don't see justice today, will ultimately demand justice of all people and you will execute justice. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.